1: On this episode of Newt's World, I've known Dana Perino for years, going all the way back to when I was speaker and she worked in the Congress, and of course she was extraordinarily effective for President Bush. And then I've interacted with her at Fox off and on. She currently is both a co-host of The Five, but she's also the co-anchor of America's Newsroom where she's just doing a great job. She has a brand new book out, Everything Will Be Okay, life lessons for young women from a former young woman. I love the title. Cliss and I, we have two daughters and a granddaughter, and so we're already relating to this. It's released on March 9th. It's already reached number one on the Amazon bestseller list and as an author, I know how big a deal that is. Dana, thank you for taking time to join us.
2: I'm honored. Any chance to talk to you, Mr. Speaker, is a great one for me.
1: Well, thank you. Now I want to ask you because you've done a lot of interesting things, and I love the way you've designed this, this life lessons for young women from a former young woman. Why did you decide to do that?
2: Well, thank you again for having me on. I think about the first book I wrote. You know, I'd get asked a question a lot. Uh, how did you become White House Press Secretary? It's actually a pretty interesting story because. I don't think anybody like sets out in their life and plans to be exactly what they end up being. You might get asked, like, how do you become Speaker of the House? And when I would tell this young women that had goals and ambitions, maybe even to be press secretary one day, I would say, well, first, you have to start as a country music DJ working overnights for minimum wage, and then you can become White House press secretary. And my point to them was that at every stage of career advancement I've been able to get under my belt, I wasn't planning for it. Now, That doesn't mean that I didn't have a lot of planning and a lot of goal setting, and I'm a firstborn daughter, so all that comes with that in terms of pressure and perfectionism. But when I looked back, I'm like, you know, I really had to just trust that God had my best interests in mind and provided me those opportunities. So when I became White House Press Secretary, I get lots of questions and advice. Young women today, they're very talented, educated, ambitious. And they're in the driver's seat, but they're carrying around a lot of anxiety. And what I wanted to do is to say, look, you were born in America, so you you already won life's great lottery and everything will be okay if you do some important and smart things, taking responsibility, making good decisions, applying yourself, discipline, and also finding a way to manage your anxieties. I know that young women are going to worry. I'm not going to tell them not to worry. But what I did in this book is say I worried away my 20s, and I don't want that for you. And here are things that I have done to manage all of that, to funnel that energy in a productive way, so that I can have a great career and also have a pretty wonderful personal life as well.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting to me. And I actually did not know that you had such close ties in Wyoming, and you give your grandfather Leo Prino of Newcastle, Wyoming. A lot of credit. I'm just curious. What did he teach you and how did that experience shape you? So my
2: grandfather was a rancher. He had served in World War II right before he went to join the war effort when he was 18 years old. He had aspirations to go to medical school to become a doctor and he wanted to see the world. When he finished with the war effort and he's coming back to the States, he had decided he'd seen enough of the world and he wanted to go home. And he helped grow the ranch into a pretty big outfit that is still in operation today. My uncle and my two cousins run it there. It's about 80 miles west of Mount Rushmore. So in the Black Hills there, really beautiful area. Well, I was a firstborn grandchild. And I think that, I don't know, there's a special bond between your grandparents. And I think that for... Girls, in a way, your grandfather is the man in your life who thinks you could do no wrong. (laughs) I loved to watch him. He was a man of incredible character and integrity. I would watch how people would come to him from around the county and ask him advice on ranching and farming. He was also a county commissioner, a proud Republican. I used to like watching him get ready for the county commissioner meetings, preparing, but also getting ready. And he would wear his dressy Wranglers. They had a crease down the front and a bolo tie, and that was dressing up. And he would also just read so much. We watched every news program. And actually, this is kind of an interesting thing. When I was about 11 years old, so early 80s, I remember sitting with him at the kitchen table, and he spelled a word for me, a beautiful penmanship. He said, can you say this word? I can't remember the exact word, but it was spina, a bunch of encephalitis or something like that. Basically, It was BSE, or mad cow disease. And he said to me, keep this word in mind. I am very concerned that there are some ranchers doing some things that are not right, and it could end up hurting people. So he had this foresight, and he paid a lot of attention to national issues, and he was also a lot of fun. You know, he just loved on us so much. So I look back, and I think about the character and the values that I learned from him, and I really wanted to be like him He knew that I'd gone to work in Washington, D.C. He was very proud of that. I joined a congressional office in August of 1995. And then I come back to Washington right after 9-11. And he never knew that I worked for the White House because he passed away while he was moving cattle from a massive heart attack on the day after Thanksgiving in 2001. But I still feel very close to him and was grateful that I had that early influence
1: in my life. It is interesting that, I think of my own life, for example. There are certain people, and you can't predict in advance, but there are certain people who come through your life and they shape you permanently. There are things about it, something about the relationship or whatever. Now, in your case, if I understand it correctly, your dad would actually have you read the Rocky Mountain News and Denver Post every day before he got home from work And then he would have you choose two articles to discuss with him before dinner. I mean, was that a chore or an adventure? Or I mean, how did you deal with that?
2: Well, Mr. Speaker, you know, you've watched me on The Five long enough to know that I loved school. And I loved assignments. And when I came home from school, I played school. (laughs) I also loved that time with my dad. He subscribed to every magazine. I remember... U.S. News and World Report, Newsweek, Time Magazine, National Review, New Republic, and we got both papers every day. And one way for my dad, who early on would always tell us as girls, as I know most girl dads do, you know, you can do anything. He grew up on a ranch where girls had different jobs than boys, but we were then living in Denver, and he was like, you know, you can do anything. And I loved the news. So. Even on Sunday nights, I was so afraid to miss 60 minutes. I didn't want to play outside. So he would set the alarm on the avocado green oven in the kitchen that it would go off. So I would hear it when I was in the backyard and I knew that I had 10 minutes to come in to get ready for 60 minutes. What I think also about that time was it wasn't just giving me an interest in the news, but it gave me some critical thinking skills and also some early chances to think about why did I pick that article? What did I think about it? And then he would gently play devil's advocate. I remember one time being on Marine One and making my case to President Bush about an issue. And in my mind's eye, I flashed back to that kitchen table discussion with my dad. And I realized how important it was from a young age to be in a position of presenting yourself in a confident way in front of a dominant male figure. And that early training, I think, really helped me later on.
1: When you think about that, here you are, in a sense, practicing. And you're practicing for a world where you have to get information quickly, think about it critically, and then brief somebody, which almost becomes the perfect training ground to eventually be presidential press secretary, where you're doing precisely those skills. You wouldn't have known that necessarily when you were doing it with your dad. Did you ever find yourself when you were about to brief President Bush and thinking, you know, this is exactly what my dad trained me for?
2: Yes. And also, are you familiar with speech and debate team and the extemporaneous event category?
1: So you would do that in high school?
2: Yes. And so basically what that was is you would study burn events all week long. And then on Saturdays for the tournaments, when you arrive for the event, you pick three topics out of a hat. And you choose which one you want to talk about. A lot of my stuff was the end of the Cold War. And then you would have 30 minutes to write a five to seven minute speech and then present it. And so there was a lot of things that led to the ability to communicate in this way. In addition, I learned along the way something from my speech coach in college that I loved. And that was that being nervous is okay. She said, it's all right to have butterflies in your stomach as long as you make them fly in formation. And I would think about that when either briefing President Bush or you know stepping to the podium or doing a live interview. And even today, I have nerves when I'm about to be on television, but I've learned to channel them in a way to help me and be
1: energetic
2: rather than crippling.
1: It's fascinating. And I think one of the real keys to achievement, although I have to admit, Dana, that when I watch you on TV, we've done some speeches together in front of audiences of thousands. I don't get any sense of nervousness. I mean, you're somehow really effectively channeling that into enough adrenaline that you're really good, but you sure don't give off any sense of nerves.
2: I think that most people, if they are going to do any sort of public event or public speaking, you have a little bit of that. In the book, I talk a lot about how it's important for women to find their strong voice. One of the things that is, I think, debilitating for women or even young people, I sometimes I hear young men do it as well. There's this style of speaking. I call it up-talking, and it's where they talk like this at the end of every sentence. It goes up like that, and it sounds like they're very unconfident, and I'm convinced that it is holding them back from jobs and raises promotions and opportunities, so I always think like gently pulling aside somebody to say, you have to find your strong voice. And actually, one of the people I worked for on Capitol Hill, her name was Holly Propes. She was the chief of staff to the late Dan Schaefer. I remember she sent me to a meeting in her place one day. And before I left for the meeting, she said, and don't forget, I'm not sending you there to be a potted plant or a little mouse. Here's my position. I need to make sure that they understand it. Basically telling me, like, don't just sit in there and not say anything. You're getting a seat at the table for a reason. And it's always scary the first time to raise your hand in a meeting and speak up. And I actually kind of had a, I would call it an educational inferiority complex, because I'd gone to this University of Southern Colorado on a speech team scholarship, I get to Washington and so many people had gone to fancier schools or bigger schools, the Ivy League. And I felt like I really couldn't hack it, that these people must be so much smarter than me and so much more intelligent. And over time, I realized, oh, President Bush turns to me just as often as he turns to anybody else for advice. So I write about that in this book, too, that you don't have to go to Ivy League to succeed.
0: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Throughout history,
1: there are clear moments that define our nation's path. And now you can own a piece of that history. I'm thrilled to announce the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition, one-ounce silver coin commemorates the historic victory in 1994 when the Republican Party, under my leadership, took control of Congress. The Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin also symbolizes the transformative political platform that led to landmark achievements like the overhaul of the welfare system and the Balanced Budget Act. This holiday season, give the gift of history. The Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin is more than an investment, it's a tribute to honest government and to America. Available to order right now by calling 866 484 4043. That's 866 484 4043. Or order online at com. That's
0: United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary
1: editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard hitting episode today, a lot of controversy. college and then university, but then you went back home to sort of figure out your next strategy. What was your thinking when you're just out of grad school and you're looking for a job? It's a
2: great example of having a plan and then it not working out and having to figure out that next step and not beat yourself up for it. I went to graduate school intending to follow a career path into local news and to eventually do what I'm doing today. But I was starting out, and I liked the politics coverage, but I didn't really love the other things. I was in Illinois, and it was only a part-time legislature. I was out of sorts, and I also felt like there was a lot of bias from the news director, but I didn't even know what bias was. I grew up in Wyoming and Colorado, and at the time, everybody I knew kind of thought the same. So then I was like, why is everybody so mean to the Republicans here? And you know when that was, Mr. Speaker, that was 1994 and going into 1995. And you think about those changes that were happening then, right? The Republicans had swept the country, um, not just in the congressional offices, but even in the state legislature. So I was going through lots of different things. I finally called my dad one day and I said, it's kind of tearful. I'm embarrassed. I think I've just paid for a graduate school degree with student loans for something I don't want to do. And my horizons felt very limited. He said, come home, you know, you'll figure it out. So I did what every good graduate student does. I went home and I lived in my parents' basement and I waited tables. And I I loved waiting tables. That was a great job. Made a lot of money. But I knew I needed to move on. And I had interviewed Congressman Scott McInnes quite a few times when I was in college at the TV station there. And I reached out to his office seeing if I could use his office as a reference for a job in the state capitol in Colorado. And his chief of staff said, well, of course you could do that, but you know we're looking for a staff assistant. Why don't you come work for us? I thought they meant in Pueblo, Colorado, but they meant in Washington, D.C. And when I slept on that, prayed about it, I woke up in the morning thinking, wow, this is where I should do and i drove across the country with my mom and my aunt patty sue and i parked at 5th and seward square right there by the capitol outside my new apartment or the room i was renting in the apartment and i didn't move my car for 5 weeks i was so terrified of the traffic <laughs> but that's really was a turning point for my whole career was having a chance to go work on capitol hill which i recommend to every young person even if you don't want to work in politics or media or government It's great training, and I still, to this day, talk to people every single day that I worked with back then.
1: I'm curious. What really struck you those first couple months when you were in D.C.?
2: I describe it as imagine a raccoon in a room full of disco balls. Everything's exciting. I loved everything, the brown bag lunches, Grover Norquist lunches. Dan Schaefer at the time was the co-sponsor of the balanced budget amendment back when we cared about those things. He was also the subcommittee chairman on energy and power. I loved the committee hearings. I wanted to learn more about that. He had a retail sales tax bill with Billy Tozan of Louisiana, and that was kind of my first taste of working across the aisle and making friends with those blue dog Democrats. And then at night, you know, we would go to things like the Colorado Avalanche game when they were playing the Washington Capitals. I loved on the weekends going for long walks up and down the mall and looking at the monuments. I loved when people visited me and I showed them everything. I made so many friends. We had no money. We used to look around and see who's having receptions this week and we could go to those. And eventually, you know, I made friends with people that were in your office. I think of Lauren Maddox, who was so wonderful and a great mentor to all of us and becomes a good friend also over time. There was just wonderful camaraderie on the Hill. And to be honest, I don't know if it's still there. The last time I visited with staffers, it just seemed like nobody was having any fun.
1: I do think that the current tone is dramatically different from when you first went there. You mentioned hockey, as I understand it. You had an interesting conversation at a hockey game with a stranger. Yeah. So I had
2: just moved to Washington. I was working for Scott McInnes, and I was answering phones as a staff assistant. That's how you usually start out. I didn't really know anybody, and, of course, didn't make much money. And this is right before the gift ban. The Coors Brewing Company bought tickets for anybody from Colorado to go to the first Colorado Avalanche game against the Capitals that year. And there was a bus that was going and so a bunch of people from the Colorado delegation were headed there. And we were very good friends with people from Hatfield's office, as I recall. And so they said, Dana, come along. And I didn't have any friends, really. So I was like, okay, I'll go. So we head out there and we're watching the game. Now, I don't know anything about hockey or sports, but I pretend that I do or that, you know, I like an event. <laughs> Sitting next to a guy named Tim Rutton, who worked for Hatfield. And he said, so what would you like to do in Washington? I said, well, I'd love to work my way up to be a House of Representatives press secretary one day. That was my goal. And he said, oh, well, Congressman Dan Schaefer from Colorado, he has an opening. My friend's moving on to be the chief of staff to Nathan Deal. And I think you should apply for the job. And I said, oh, but I just took this other job with Congressman McInnes. Wouldn't it look bad if I tried to move on? And I was very reluctant to raise my hand for a new job that soon. And he looked at me and said, oh, you have no idea how this place works. And he had me meet with Janelle Guerrero the next day on the fifth floor of the Cannon House office building where we met up and she gave me the seal of approval. And then I went to interview with Dan Schaefer and he could tell I was so nervous to tell Scott McInnes that I was going to get a job to move on. And I'll never forget that he said, how about I call Scott? and talk to him. And I will never forget, Mr. Speaker, that Scott McKinnis, to his credit, said that's a perfect job for her. I'm so excited. And to this day he remains one of my best champions. Anytime I have a good show or a new opportunity, I always will get a little note from him saying, I knew you were gonna be something one day. And that just meant so much to me. You
1: know, I think it also is a reminder of how sometimes life is a series of zigzags you know for a lot of these people who want to know what's the straight line very often doesn't work that way you know you end up in places you never dreamed of like Rome, yet, like rome yeah, i mean Callista was just thrilled to be the ambassador to the vatican and she's a very devout catholic and spent 20 years singing at the basilica here in washington and probably the best job she'll ever have she was just emotionally and spiritually so filled, having a chance to represent America to the Vatican. It's remarkable. And I have to say I was what well, the State Department calls the trailing spouse, and I had the time of my life. And we had never planned on it. Just came out of the blue and they said, Would you like to go do this? And she said, Well, yeah, <laughs> now that you mention it. But but I'm curious <laughs> in terms of the zigzags, because as I understand it, you've got momentum, you're doing fun things, and yet you reach a point where you really feel like your life isn't working out very much. I mean, how did that happen, and how did you cope with it?
2: So I didn't know at the time. What I was going through is what's called a quarter-life crisis. I find that many young women go through this. After a few years of working on the Hill, I could pretty much do the job with my eyes closed in a way. I didn't feel like I was learning much more. I wanted to move up, and actually, there was a position I was looking at, I believe, in Dick Armey's office, And I also was at a point where, you know, I was thinking that I would meet somebody and find a way to marry somebody and move on with life that way. And I just didn't have a date for years. So I was a member of the Lutheran Church of the Reformation on Third Street, just there behind the Supreme Court. And I went to a singles group every Wednesday night as well uh, as Sunday service. And we would just get together, talk about things. and I. Was basically opening up one night about how I was feeling. And there was a woman there who was slightly older than the rest of us who said, Remember what God says. He says, Fear not. And He's not going to forget you. You are written in the palm of His hand. And you can relax. Everything will be okay, basically. And I wouldn't say that worked overnight. Within a month or so, that spring, I started to feel a lot better. Then in August, just as I'm trying to think, what am I going to do with my life? I even contemplated going in the Peace Corps because I wanted to travel and see the world. I get on a flight to go from Denver to Chicago to D.C. after having done some editorial boards with Dan Schaefer back in the district at my old stomping grounds at Denver Post and the Rocky Mountain News when it was in business. And I sit next to a guy who's British. He's 18 years older than me. Lived in England at the time. Was reading The Tailor of Panama by John Le Carre. I asked him about the book. He had this British accent, and I fell in love on a plane. And then I had to make a decision. Do I move to England, which was what my heart wanted to do, but I was telling myself, well, what about your career? And eventually this woman in my family pulled me aside at a Christmas event, and she said, do not give up on this opportunity to be loved. He might be the only man who ever truly loves you. And I realized I was worried so much about what other people would think about my decision rather than just following my heart. And in the book, I write about how choosing to be loved is not a career-limiting decision. And I see this with you and Callista as well. Obviously, you have many irons in the fire and doing great things. But when she got an opportunity to be the ambassador to the Vatican, what did you say? Yes, let's go. And I watched you, very supportive of her all the way through anything that she was doing. And I'm sure... There were days where she might call you and talk to you after dinner, and like, "What do you think about this problem?" and talk it through." And Peter has been that person for me, including the time I got kicked out of the Oval Office, which was not my fault. I didn't do anything wrong. And I called him afterwards, and I said, "Peter," and I was tearful, and I said, "You won't believe what happened?" And he made it so much better because he said, "Well, just think, for the rest of your life, you can say I've been kicked out of better places than this."
1: <laughs> That's a great line. By the way. Do you explain in your book how you got kicked out of the Oval Office? You can hardly raise that and not have somebody ask you about it.
2: (laughs) I had been with the administration since right after 9-11, and I'd been at Justice Department, then White House Counsel on Environmental Quality, and then on Inauguration Day of 2005, I joined the White House Press Office as a deputy. On like my second or third day on the job, Dan Bartlett, the Communications Director, asked me if I'd be willing to sit in on an interview the president needed to do because he had to go to a different meeting, but that he would meet me in the Oval Office and do the pre-brief for the president, and all I had to do was sit in on the interview, take notes, and cut it off after half an hour. And I thought, okay, I can do that. So I meet him at the Oval Office. I'm so nervous. It's so majestic. I don't even think the president knew my name at that time (laughs) or maybe remembered me. Anyway, so I go in there. And Bartlett's doing the pre-brief. And he says, you know, this columnist is here to do an interview with you. And the president says, I'm not doing an interview with him. I said I would talk to him. And Dan said, well, not that. You said you would do an interview. He says, no, I'm not doing an interview with him. And actually, the president had a very good reason. He said, if I do an interview with him, it will look like I'm trying to negotiate through the newspaper. And I'm not doing that. And therefore, she doesn't need to be here. And he cocked his head towards the door with basically a, you can see yourself out kind of gesture. So I just left, you know, I walked the 32 paces back to my office, sort of miserable and worried and told Peter. And of course he says, you've been kicked out of better places than this. And about eight years later, I was on a flight with president Bush during his book tour for decision points. And I said, Hey, Mr. President, do you remember when you kicked me out of the oval office and he said, I never kicked you out of the Oval Office. I said, yes, you did. Don't you remember? I can remember every detail like it was yesterday. And he says, "Stand, I have no recollection of that. And I said, but he interrupted me and he said, are you still upset? <laughs> and I said, yes, kind of. And the reason I write about this story in the book is I have a whole part in there about letting go of disappointments or mistakes and not beating yourself up on it or reliving them over and over again because... One of the ways that you go from being a junior staffer to a senior staffer or a manager or a leader is by showing that you can take a punch and get back up, that you can learn from a mistake, that you can get over something and move on. It's that resiliency that makes a difference between you and other employees.
1: I have to confess that large parts of my career have been triumphs of endurance rather than intelligence. I describe it as cheerful persistence. And, of course, your career in many ways has been very similar. We both knew and loved Tony Snow. And you were the acting press secretary while he was undergoing treatment for colon cancer. What did you learn from Tony in that period? Oh, gosh, so much.
2: Tony Snow meant a lot to me as he did so many people for lots of different reasons. He was a wonderful press secretary. But before that, you know, he had such a storied career. I like to tell people that Tony Snow was a philosophy major and a math minor at Davidson College. And I think if you want to be a great writer and a great communicator, you don't have to study journalism. But learning how to think more critically and logically, that was one of his strengths. But he wrote beautifully and he had such a big heart. Quite a musician, too. Played in a band was married to Jill, three lovely children who I'm happy to say everybody here who followed his life, his children are doing exceedingly well, all of them. Everybody's healthy and happy and successful. I would say one thing I learned from him well two things. I write about in the book about how if you are the leader of the office or the boss or the manager, I say don't be a boss hog. So he used to have me do a lot of the briefing of President Bush and a lot of the travel. He was of course dealing with his own cancer treatments, which require a lot of energy and rest. So he would have me go on the weekends and holidays, and I did more of the management of the office and of managing President Bush, and that really helped me learn how to manage up. And then he would have me brief for him quite often. And then there was a day when he had to have surgery, cancer-related, and I had to brief for three weeks, and I had no desire to be in front of the camera. I really was happy being behind the scenes. And I'll never forget that he made me stand up and he put his hands on my shoulders and he shook me and he said, you are better at this than you think you are. And I didn't exactly know what he meant, but a couple of weeks into my time as press secretary, I was rushing on a Friday and I didn't take all my notes with me to the briefing room. And I just had this one piece of paper where I'd made some scribbles and it was the best briefing I'd ever done up to that date. And later on that day, I said, oh, that's what Tony meant. I don't have to try to be just like him. I can just be myself, and that that was enough. And I'll always be grateful for that, and I try to pass it on.
1: Well, I'm curious, because I've always been on the other side of the table. What is it like to be up there with 30, 40, 50 reporters, all of whom are trying to play gotcha? How do you stay balanced in that
2: environment? One of the things I write about in the book in regards to work-life balance is that I learned something (laughs) later in life and actually after I left the White House. But it was a great way to think about work-life balance in that sometimes you'll have an opportunity like to work in a White House. And your work-life balance might feel really out of whack, way more work than life. One, I think it's good to like what you do because then work and life kind of feel good all the time and in sync But a young woman I met after our White House years said she started to think of work-life balance over the course of your lifetime, that there might be times when you are working 18-hour days and you might miss events, weddings and birthdays, but that that's okay because you know that it's for a limited amount of time. Like you can give it your all for four years. One of the things I did in order to manage the briefing room And thankfully, my dad set me up for this is I always wanted to be the most well-read person in the room. And I wanted the reporters to know it. So when I went in there, if I said X is Y and Y is X, and they knew that I knew that they could take that to the bank. If I didn't know the answer to something, I would be very clear to say, I'll get right back to you as soon as I can. I also spent a lot of time managing the press briefing room outside of the actual briefing talking to reporters, reading what they were interested in, finding out what was on their minds, and building relationships with them so that by the time I got to the briefing room, I kind of knew what was coming. And, you know, sometimes people think that reporters turn in their questions to the White House before a press conference. I actually don't think that has ever been true. I do think that a good White House press office will be able to anticipate all the questions because they're paid to. That's your job. You have to figure that out. And... I was really good at guessing the questions. I could almost even tell you exactly the tone, <laughs> and I could mimic a few reporters. The president would kind of get a kick out of that. One of the great compliments I have from him is that he was never surprised by a question in a press conference when I did a pre-brief. But that meant that you know, it was just a lot of work on the front end.
1: I've always been a strong believer in the importance of investing wisely. That's why I've personally invested in Legacy Precious Metals. At Legacy Precious Metals, they're not leaving your financial future to chance. They're on a mission to help you secure your financial future post retirement. In partnership with them, I am thrilled to announce the launch of the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin. This limited edition coin is made of one ounce of 99.99% fine silver, commemorating the historic moment when, against all odds, we balance the budget for the last time in U.S. history. This coin isn't just an investment. It's a piece of our nation's history. And now you can own it. As the holiday season approaches, it's the perfect gift. You can purchase yours today by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. You describe it now so confidently, but I want our listeners to realize you were the first Republican woman to become presidential press secretary. What did that feel like? I mean, did you have some sense that you were now part of history?
2: I did. You know, In fact, I actually went in to Ed Gillespie's office that day intending to resign because there was another 18 months to go. They had suggested that if you didn't feel like you could make it all the way to the end, it would be better to try to move on. And I was deputy for so long. And I thought, you know, now might be the right time. And Peter and I discussed it at length. And I didn't really want to leave the White House. And I was going to miss them. But I, we had decided as a couple that that was what was best for us. So that morning, I went in. It was a Monday. I see Ed. And I said, hi, I need to chat with you. Can I see you after the communications meeting? He says, yes, I need to talk to you, too. Okay, fine. Communications meeting takes place. At the end, he says, Dana, can you stay behind? I said, sure. And I was so nervous that I almost blurted out that I was going to resign. And before I could speak, Ed said, Do you mind if I go first? And I said, Oh, sure, go ahead. And he said, The president would like to name you as press secretary on Friday. And so many emotions went through me in one instant, but one of them was, my life just changed dramatically and forever. And this is an opportunity for me. And if I do it well, there's a whole new world of opportunity that awaits me. So I said, that's wonderful. And what do we need to do to get ready for this transition? So one of my lessons is always let the other person go first.
1: I never knew this story to your book, but you actually ended up briefing President Putin. And it was an interesting comment on, The difference between the Soviet Union or Russia, as it now is, and the American model, that must have been almost an eerie experience.
2: Yes. So I was deputy press secretary, and one of my jobs was to keep in touch with the reporters to find out what was on their minds. And then right before the two leaders would go out for their press conference, I would come in and brief them on that. So I was doing all of that, but they also said, Dana, make sure that you remind President Putin that our reporters are likely to ask him about press freedoms in Russia, because they always asked about that. And they didn't want Putin to think that the Bush administration had sort of pulled a fast one on him. So I go in, I'm so nervous, and Putin is so cold, right? The steely blue eyes are a real thing. And also, it's unclear how much English he understands. And I respect that he also knows that the best thing for him to do is to speak in Russian because he doesn't feel confident negotiating or communicating officially in English. So I come in and the president says, what you got? I'm like, so, sir, okay, you're going to be asked about this and this and this. And And then I just made myself have eye contact with Vladimir Putin. And I said, and Mr. President, our reporters are likely to ask you a question about press freedoms in Russia. This is right around the time all those journalists just happened to be falling from skyscrapers in Russia, jumping out of windows. Like It had happened like three or four times. And he looks at President Bush and says, why would I answer a question on that when you just fired that newsman? The president says, what are you talking about? He says, you know you fired that newsman. And the president says, wait, Vladimir, are you talking about Dan Rather? I did not fire him. He is employed by a private company. The company fired him. I didn't fire him. And I'm telling you, as your friend, do not go out there and say that. You will be embarrassed. And then we went to the press conference, and sure enough, our reporters asked about press freedoms. And Vladimir Putin said, why would I do that when he fired the newsman? And I could see all of our reporters looking at each other quizzically. And then when they finally figured out what he was talking about, they were confused because press freedoms are serious. I had other times where I briefed Vladimir Putin, but that was one of the ones that I remember the most.
1: Well, in that sense, you actually got to be with and meet an amazing range of world figures just by being sort of in the intersection that the White House is for this. But one of your experiences with a foreign journalist actually ended up with you getting injured. Uh, TV journalist Muntadhar Al-Zaidi through two shoes of President Bush during a Baghdad press conference. Now, Bush dodged, but you apparently got hit by a mic stand. I mean, Mm -hmm. that must sound like a little bit of a scrum.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so we had been on the ground in Iraq for about 12 hours. The longest you could be on the ground was for 14 hours before Secret Service was like, you've got to go. That was a range of safety. And We had just arrived, and Ed Gillespie and I sat off to the side, and I was like, wow, look at all these journalists. They never thought they'd get a chance to actually ask their leader questions as a free press, let alone the leader of the free world. There's tons of equipment in the room, and I was sitting right next to the boom mic that was being used for translation, and just as the press conference gets started, you can look it up on YouTube, folks, if you haven't watched it, or you want to hear the little scream the guy throws two shoes at the president. One, two. And thankfully, George Bush was an athlete and had really good reflexes and ducks both of them. And then he's just looking at the guy like, who throws his shoes? What in the world? And Maliki, the prime minister, is so embarrassed. And he is wanting to end the press conference. But what happened to me was the Secret Service agent, Don White, rushed forward to protect the president. And that steel arm of the boom mic swung around so fast and caught me right below my eye on the bone right there. Very close to breaking it. Thank God it didn't. And I was so sore. And I actually thought for a second that the whole thing was a distraction for a bomb because that was a very typical terrorist tactic to create a distraction and a diversion so that when your attention is elsewhere, something else happens. And there was so much equipment in that room. But it wasn't, thankfully. And... I thought we would leave, but President Bush said, no, no terrorist is going to kick us out of this room. We're going to take the questions. And he looked at this one young Iraqi reporter and he says, what do you got? What's your question? This guy was just dumbstruck. And Maliki was also just so nervous. And the president said, ask your question and made everyone focus, which I thought was the right thing to do. In the meantime, this one Marine, I wish I could find his name. He had the biggest hands. And he (laughs) grabbed my hand and lifted me up over the whole scene onto the floor where we could walk to the door. And I went to get medical attention and nobody wanted to let anyone leave the room because now it's a crime scene. And he says, what do you need? I said, I need my doctor. And he said, oh, I am doctor. (laughs) No, I want the White House doctor, please. And anyway, I got a big black eye out of that for six
1: weeks. That's an amazing story. Let me ask you one last thing because it's so relevant to your advice for young women. Something which I believe in passionately and I was thrilled to see that you did too. Talk about the impact of having a mentor and how you develop those kind of relationships and those kind of experiences.
2: I like to think of mentoring as something that it doesn't have to be so formal. A lot of companies now do have mentoring programs, and I think those can be very good, but they also feel a little restrictive and limiting. My chief of staff that I worked with on Capitol Hill, I think of as my first really great mentor. She helped me learn how to brief a boss. She would always say, make sure you leave on a high note when you go to see the boss. Always leave them up with something positive to think about. So I learned that. That's one of the reasons my first book is called And the Good News Is. She would also do things like blind copy me on emails so that I could see how she communicated. She would let me sit in on her interviews where she would talk to the press so that I could hear how she would do things. But also she gave me a real appreciation for understanding policy, not just understanding how to talk about it, but to actually understand the policy we were talking about puka and Purpa reform. I didn't even know what those things were at the time. And even the FERC, the FERC, I, that was my first press call it was about the FERC. I had to ask the reporter how to spell it. And she was so patient with me. And I look back and I pay tribute to her in the book because she really helped do things that I do with my own staff today in terms of helping them along the way. I also think that you can have mentors all throughout your life. There's a woman now... In my life that I admire so much, her name is Dame Anne Glogue, and she's a very successful businesswoman, but also an incredible philanthropist, which is how she became a dame, knighted by the queen a couple of years ago for all of her work, mostly in Africa. It's just an incredible story of her tenacity, bravery. She refuses to pay bribes in Africa, and she still is able to get things done. And then more recently, I met this young woman named Sadie Robertson she has quite a following. She's 27 years old. I don't know if she would call herself a minister, though she might, but she does, I think, minister to people. She has a wonderful podcast. She's so bright and fun and interesting. And I realized, oh my goodness, I have another role model and she's only 27.
1: Well, listen, you've been very generous with your time. I just want to say to everybody that Dana is a perfect example of somebody who has both a private lesson for young ladies and a public life that they can learn from and the combination is just amazing and i think that she really exemplifies the potential you have if you believe in yourself if you're willing to persevere you're willing to learn you're willing to recognize that sometimes you're going to fall down but you can get back up and i think in that sense that you've been just a remarkable role model and i'm really so glad that you put that into a form that everybody can have access to. And we're certainly going to make sure that it's prominent on our show page.
2: Talk about generous with your time. That would be you. Thank you so much.
1: You can read more about Dana Perino and get a link to buy her new book, Everything Will Be Okay, Life Lessons for Young Women, from a former young woman on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich, this is Newt's World.